IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss the 30th anniversary of Nirvana's Nevermind. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host... Here he is now, entertain us, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Well, uh, you know, above all else, what I'm thinking about is how to enhance the IndieCast listener experience. I mean, that's really always number one with a bullet on my mind. And, you know, I... I hope yeah. so. I mean, what else are we I here mean, for? that and also to figure out what to do with our intern who exists and is very real. Yes. So I think yes. the next logical step beyond the Twitter account and having the email addresses to really get like an emergency hotline for IndieCast listeners for things like, for example, the Wrens more or less announcing their breakup in a New York Times article that kind of came out. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if that's not a reason to have like people on call 24 seven to deal, to have like our 40 year old fans process this news, then, then, then what else are we really here for? Indie, uh, aging indie fan Twitter reeling this week <laughs> yeah. over this news. And for those who didn't see it, you know, the Wrens have been at work on the follow up to the Meadowlands, their 2003 masterpiece. We can call it a, a masterpiece, piece. right? It's a great yeah. record. And it was reported this week that Kevin Whelan has split off from the Wrens and he's going to basically take the songs that he had made for this Renz record that's been in the works for you know many many years and he's going to put out a solo record uh in December on on Sub Pop uh and uh his new band is called it's a uh, uh, Ian or, or Aeon Station Yeah it, it's Aeon, a, A-E-O-N. I think it's Aeon because like I'm trying to think about like Aeon Flux that show on Liquid Television on MTV by the way if those if Liquid Television or MTV mean anything to you you're probably in that demographic that could have used the uh, IndieCast hotline to talk about the Rens. Yeah exactly but you know it but it's like mixed news because on one hand it appears that the Rens uh are over or at least as we previously knew them but on on the good side, it uh, looks like this album is coming out. And I actually, I received a promo of this record. It is currently sitting in my iTunes. So I've listened to about half of it. So it definitely exists. If this album doesn't come out, um, I might have to just bootleg <laughs> it uh, to send it to people. But it, it is out there. Um, but uh, yeah, it, the Wrens, as far as this record that they've been working on forever, it, it's hard to know... Like where we're at with that, I I interviewed Charles Bissell, mm. who's like the other big guy in the Wrens, in January. He played me some songs that he had been working on. Um, so presumably he'll either do a solo record or he'll continue on as the Wrens. I mean that that appears to be unclear at this point. If nothing else, if none of these records actually come to pass, we can use the IndieCast hotline to like leak them. You know, we could play it over the phone in a very I, I didn't like bands used to do that in like the '90s or whatever. Like that's how you could hear a new song. I think like Wu Tang did that. Yeah, I don't. I mean, from reading that New York Times story, it seems like the issue is that Charles is this very exacting uh, perfectionist, maybe somewhat uncertain 
artistic sensibility mm-hmm. who just wants to work on songs forever. And finally, after, you know, almost 20 years, Kevin was finally like, okay, I don't want to wait anymore. Like it was, I, I wonder, I mean, it seems like there was a lot of patience mm-hmm. there and then suddenly there was not. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, look, I've, I've, I've interviewed Charles, I've interacted with him. He's a really nice guy. He's a great songwriter. I hope that he figures something out with this record and, you know, he's going to put it out in his own, in his own time. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to find out like what is going to happen with his part of the Renz record. I remember I was interviewing him and he was talking about the Renz record having like a concept tied to like Homer's, uh, like the Odyssey. Like there was some, like Homer, I thought you were talking about like uh, something. Concept? I thought you were talking about like something Simpsons related, like as if the well, of course, as you if did. as if the <laughs> Rens could do anything more to endear themselves to the, like the 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 indie cast demographic. No, this was like uh, I'm talking about the Simpsons of like you know I don't know when the uh, the Odyssey came out. <laughs> what year was yeah, that? Yeah, it, it really cleaned, what, what, it cleaned up on like the best books of like five thousand like five hundred A.D. You know that. It yeah, right. The Sally exactly. Rooney the sixth of century. Time. It killed back then. Uh, you know, I was thinking about the Wrens uh, again. You know, obviously when the story came out, and I was just thinking about the phenomenon of like workaday schlubs who don't look like rock stars who have day jobs who end up achieving a measure of of indie fame. And you know, the Wrens are an example of that. One of my favorite bands, Guided by Voices, oh, yeah. was an example of that. And um, is that at all possible now? Like, are we totally beyond the point where, like, a 37-year-old person who, you know, works at the bank just drops, like, a masterpiece that blows everyone's mind? And they're like, wow, this this could this could have been the guy that works in the cubicle next to me, and now he's getting bestie music on Pitchfork. I mean, are we totally past that as a possibility? I mean, if... If you're talking about like 37 year old like dudes who look like Robert Pollard or um, any of the, like the Rens, yeah. But like then again, every single indie person, you know, maybe aside from like the elite, have a day job. It just probably doesn't look like the 90s version where it's like someone from you know Secaucus, New Jersey, or Dayton, Ohio, who you know like like kind of have that thing. You it, what it might be is that like someone who's like 35 years old and like. I don't know, worked for some sort of graphic design type thing. Um, you know, like I, I think that sort of concept is fallen by the wayside, but I think that's kind of why we hold on so tight to bands like Guided by Voices and the Wrens, because I, I really do think they're a kind of last of their kind uh, sort of act. And also they make songs about that too. Like the entire Rent, the Meadowlands is about being in this like, you know, failed uh band and like wondering like what the heck you're doing with your life and i'm like 23 years old in law school listening to this like yo dude yeah i'm really this 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 is about me somehow (laughs) i mean you make a good point about how the majority of indie bands now have some sort of day job but it seems like people don't make that part of their uh image or persona that like i'm I'm just this workaday person who also makes records like what if foxing was like hey because I don't know what those they, guys. They do definitely in there. had to. I mean, if you followed their, they definitely had. I'm sure yeah. they do. But like, what if what if that was foregrounded into their narrative as much as being a school teacher was for Robert Pollard, or as much as 
the day jobs of the people in the Wrens have been put <laughs> into their narrative. I feel like, in a way, that's like not a bad PR move. I'm, I'm giving free PR advice out there to indie bands. <laughs> Maybe talk about like your offstage life a little bit more, and people will relate to you. I, I think that there's this idea that if you talk about your day job, uh-huh. that it's unrock and roll or it's not very glamorous that it might detract from your music yeah it demystifies think, you know like the but i think there's something kind of appealing about that to the average listener because in a way you feel like well that could be me i i could have been in this band i relate to this band because they work the same kind of job that i do am i wrong with this because I, I, I like this idea of just like average people with jobs and then and then they make a great record. There's something kind of cool about that. I think so too, but I also think that there is so much pressure to be relatable like via Twitter or Instagram. Like there are many many ways to do that and uh, you know, maybe it's not like, oh, I work this kind of blue collar type job. I mean, that like some bands absolutely do that, but like I just think that it's it's kind of tough to write about that sort of thing without, you know, maybe trying to sound like Bruce Springsteen. Well, you can say it in interviews, though. You wouldn't have to write oh, about because, okay. like, like, Robert Power didn't write about being a teacher. No, but like every you, interview with uh, him talked about that. Yeah, he talked about like everything else in the world, but like never that. <laughs> right, like you know, yeah, he's writing about like kicking elves and yeah. you know games of pricks. Yeah, very like, very you know. relatable stuff, you know. And I hear that I'm like, yo, dude. But like, like <laughs> it's but it's not the lyrics; it's the yeah. interviews. It was like his persona, like what he presented to the world that he was just this beer drinking dude from the midwest <laughs> who you know again could have been you like he like you look at him and like oh i could have been that guy except he's yeah. way more talented than i am i'm just saying like if you're a band out there and like your your, your side gig is you know you, you're like welding on the <laughs> side like that's your job like in flash dance <laughs> like the woman in flash dance is a welder maybe meant drop that in some interviews i think you might get some uh might get some buzz from that. It's like, wow, this guy, like this person welds, and they also write hooky indie rock songs. Like, this is my person. Yeah, IndieCast Core, like, well known for being like underrated by the mainstream press. Like, we're giving advice on how to break through. I love it. I'm just saying, <laughs> free advice to yeah. all the musicians out there. Um, do we want to talk about the brewing Machine Gun Kelly uh, Slipknot feud? The only thing that, uh, I mean, this is funny on numerous levels because I think like both sides are getting great shots. I just love I how... I mean, do you, want, like, do you know the details? Of, I think yeah, I'll, 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 details. Ex- I'll explain here. So apparently, like, I-, I love that this is like my, you know, this is my detail on the IndieCast uh, banter. Um, but what happened is, uh, so apparently Slipknot back in earlier in the year, t- like, took a shot at an unnamed person who fails in one genre and goes into rock obviously talking about Machine Gun Kelly. So at Riot Fest this past weekend, Machine Gun Kelly's on stage playing uh, playing against Slipknot. And they, you know, he talks about like, I don't want to be like some 50-year-old asshole in a mask looking pathetic and obviously about Slipknot. And then, you know, War of Words ensues. Apparently, like Machine Gun Kelly said that uh, Corey Taylor of Slipknot tried to record uh, vocals for one of his albums. They turned it down because it was so bad. And then, Corey Taylor's like, no, you loved my shit, and you know, I just didn't want to be controlled and so forth. I and he produced receipts. We gotta mention he, the he produced receipts and the parlance of the times. So my 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 issue is like, look, obviously I like Slipknot a lot more than Machine Gun Kelly, but I just get 
I have to laugh when people talk about like Machine Gun Kelly being this like interloper who sullied the integrity of pop punk, you know? It's like, no, man, like I don't even think he's from Long Island or something, you know, or he, he like it's, it's got to be real pop punk, like newfound glory. I, like for I could care less like whether Machine Gun Kelly is like, you know, doing terrible like pop rap or terrible pop punk. I mean, he, to me. You know, like Bob Dylan, he switched genres. The Beastie Boys switched genres. Oh, wait, wait, so you're comparing uh, Machine Gun Kelly to Bob Dylan? I am absolutely comparing Machine Gun Kelly to Bob Dylan and the Beastie Boys. And I think everyone else should, too. If you get nothing else from this episode of IndieCast, is that I think of Machine Gun Kelly on the echelon of these artists. Well, and and Machine Gun Kelly, he did go electric, if you will, at Riot Fest. And uh, (laughs) people were uh, just tearing their hair out over it, or at least Corey Taylor was. Look, I don't really care about the authenticity of Machine Gun Kelly, but I love that that Corey Taylor cares and that he's taking shots at him. Um, like when I used to do my Rivalries podcast, I we did an episode on the Eminem versus Machine Gun Kelly rivalry because there was some jawing back and forth going there, yeah. and that seemed one of those situations where Machine Gun Kelly was clearly taking a shot at a top dog yeah. to elevate himself. It was very mismatched. This actually feels a little more even to me because, you know, I think Corey Taylor's legacy is obviously much richer than Machine Gun Kelly's, but Machine is Gun it? Kelly is, <laughs> well, well, Slipknot as a band, I think, is has a better legacy than Machine Gun Kelly, right? I mean, wouldn't you say that? Yeah. Like, they, they, like they're more important than but Machine Gun Kelly. I don't but know. Like, At the current time, I'd say, like, Machine Gun Kelly is, like... One of the biggest pop stars in existence. Well, that's what I was going to. I was talking about legacy. Oh, legacy. I was talking about the past. Ooh, well, the past I, with our intention spans being what they are. I'm. Let me finish my <laughs> sentence. You're not letting me finish my sentence. I said the legacy is better for Slipknot, but uh. Machine Gun Kelly is obviously the bigger star right now. Going back to my original point about them being a little bit more even than the Eminem machine. See, you're so quick to to defend Machine Gun Kelly here. Mm. That you would not allow any slander in my previous statement. There is like, what have I become? No, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, legacy. Wait a second, Machine Gun Kelly though. He's got some jams. He's good. <laughs> you know, I'm just. I was just trying to lay out the point here that I think they're even. You give the you give the history to Corey Taylor. You give the mm. relevance now to Machine Gun Kelly. Yes, I'm hoping that this plays out. Yeah, more. Very you know, evenly matched fighters. It's like a it's like a classic brawl, you know, two contrasting styles. Um is it weird that we haven't talked about the Fujis yet? I mean, I think this is actually like the biggest <laughs> news of the week. Yeah, I love I like I thought this tour this reunion tour was oh like okay, first off we have to mention the fact that like the Fujis reunited and the Rents can't get their shit together. I, I, apparently this show happened last night. I thought it was like in the future that the Fujis were gonna tour, but it happened last I night. It, well, I don't think it was a tour. It was like uh, a. I think it was like a New York like secret show. Okay. To drum up publicity okay. type. Well, situation. it started three and a half hours late. Apparently, so that's how you know you're getting like prime era Fuji's. <laughs> like, ah, uh, God. I mean, look, I love the score. I listened to it this past week. Relive being on the school bus uh, in high school, and I mean, at no point during the '90s did I ever think, God, it would be awesome to see this live you know and um just with like i think like now 
after all this time, like, Lauren Hill seems to have had the most level-headed career <laughs> afterwards, you know? Like, Wyclef, I think he ran for president of Haiti. He got, like, super jacked. Also, we got to... I don't think we mentioned this, but Wyclef trying to burn his guitar is easily the funniest part of Woodstock's 99's documentary. Oh, yeah. I know. I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more, like, Wyclef discourse in the (laughs) aftermath of the film because him doing the Star Spangled Banner and then him trying to set the guitar on fire and then I think he tried to smash the guitar. Yeah. And uh, the guitar was fully intact, I think, after all of that abuse. Um... You know, you haven't, we haven't mentioned Praz yet. Like, what's been what's 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 Praz been doing since like Ghetto Superstar? That's like the last Praz. Uh, maybe he's you know, the guy who's like working a blue collar job. You know, like maybe he is right. But also, like we like John Forte was another guy in Fuji's. He like went to uh, he got like pardoned by uh, a president or something like that. What? Uh, yeah, John John Forte has had a had the most bizarre. Um, life after that like he got arrested at like the airport for like having a million and a half dollars of liquid cocaine uh he did a duet as with, one does yeah he he had an album that had a duets with herbie hancock and carly simon um he got <laughs> he got his present he got his prison sentence commuted by george w bush oh man yeah oh, man. so see i i think i'd love to see a documentary on the fugees oh yeah that also looked at their post score lives but yeah this tour though um i mean i don't know how much uh faith you would have as a ticket buyer for this show that it would actually happen because it just seems like it's not even like when guns and roses reunited and you just had one axel rose i feel like there's at least two axel Axel's Rose, <laughs> yeah, Axel's Rose. Because I mean, I don't know where Lauren Hill's head at is that. I mean, she's been. Um, I mean, you said she's had the most level-headed career. I mean, that's like a, that's relatively speaking, of course. Um, and yeah, and then Wyclef. I, I just it just seems like a lot of combustible chemicals put back together. That if you like, if there's if they hit like any rock in the road. The truck is just going to explode. I mean, but I don't know. Who knows? I mean, maybe they went to therapy or something, and it, and they got all the issues resolved, and this is going to be smooth sailing. Um, like, are, are they doing arenas on this tour? Like, uh, or th- large theaters? I, I I wonder what the audience is. I would imagine that there's like a good older nostalgia audience that would be really into this tour i mean it's like a there's not a lot of dates on this tour there's like they're playing the state farm arena they're playing the the uh uh the forum in la so it it, and the united center so it looks like they're gonna be like basketball arenas yeah and also playing somewhere in nigeria ghana uh london and paris where's the state farm arena the state farm arena is in atlanta georgia okay should i have known that is that no. like a famous? Uh, <laughs> no, uh, is that the old Omni, or did they tear down the Omni? I remember the Omni. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think maybe that's where uh, the Hawks play now, or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah, no, it, that's that's where the Hawks play. I think it was called. Okay. It was called the. Uh, it replaced the Omni, uh, right. and then it was called some. How, how, I've been there. I, I should know what this shit is called. Yeah, you're. Yeah, you lived in Georgia for a while. I did. Oh, it this used to be the this? Phillips Arena. The Phillips, Phillips Arena. Arena. That's okay. it. Yeah. So I'm so, sure you got some uh, dead bootlegs from there. Yeah. Pro- well, no, the, the the dead would have played the Omni. Ah, I got think, it. Uh, maybe Dead and Co. Though have That's played. That's what I meant. Yeah. 
the State Farm Arena. You know, we'll have to uh, <laughs> see. We're talking about this because Ian and I are going to start a new podcast called Basketball Arena Cast. Yeah, we, we just talk about basketball arenas. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, let's get to our mailbag segment, and this is a question actually we were going to do last week, and we ran out of time. Yes. And we decided to save it because I, I, it seems like we're going to have a lot to say about this question. Mm. So it's good to be able to expound on it. I think it ended up in like our episode description. Yeah, so we got called asking, out for that. That's yeah, a, we did. That's that's proof that people really are paying attention. Well, the in, the that was the intern's responsibility. Yeah. to get that uh, squared away, <laughs> and uh, there was a severe talking to about that issue. I feel like you should read this question. Okay, I think it's directed at you, or at least it says so. In, yeah, I mean, it's about brand new, so... Um, oh, man, know, the, there you go. The, the first line, it's like, this question may be directed towards Ian. I mean, so there you go. But yeah. would love your thoughts as well, Steve. Uh, yes. But what can or should be done about brand new? Is there any realistic scenario where the band can come back and exist in some capacity in the music community? Uh, for context, I was in high school in the mid-2000s, had an unhealthy or healthy diet of drive through Vagrant, and Victory Records. Uh, by the end of college, he phased out that stuff for 90s alt rock and modern indie rock, with the exception of Brand New. I could take or leave their first two records, those being um, Your Favorite Weapon and uh, Deja Entendu. Uh, but the th- other three I've listened to uh, throughout my 30s, they seem to age better than any of their contemporary scandal aside, and the music holds up. I can't listen, help but listen to The Devil and God Are Raging Inside Me around Halloween each year, Just Perfect Vibes. That's so, a big aside, by the way. Yeah. You're, you're, you're yada, yada, yadaing uh, the scandal there. But at, at any rate. Yeah. So, yeah. So the question, like, could they drop unreleased songs with the proceeds going to charity or something similar? Or in your opinion, is the press surrounding Jesse Lacey too bad for them to come back from? Or is brand new remaining in a permanent state of flux the most brand new way for them to go out? That's from Daniel. Location undisclosed. Yeah. He did not say. He's in the uh, IndieCast uh mailbag relocation program yeah so he's basically asking can brand new ever be uncanceled Uh uh-huh is the question and you know we've talked about this recently in regard to ryan adams you know there was that ryan adams article that came out over the summer that it seemed like it was about putting out feelers out there in terms of like how much sympathy is out there for ryan adams and the answer is not much Mm -hmm. apparently um i mean i'll let you yeah. Dig into this. I mean, my, my my feeling on brand new is well, f- well, two things. I think that cancellations tend to stick the most in scenes where it's easier to police, mm. uh, you know, the scene essentially. Like I think of like Power Bottom being the most oh, yeah. complete <laughs> cancellation yeah. of all time, where you can't even like find their records anywhere they've been like wiped off the face of the planet and it's because they came out of this punk scene where mm-hmm. essentially because of what was reported about them there's no way any label or venue would want to work with them because you know the fans in that scene take accusations like that very seriously mm-hmm. whereas maybe in other scenes or if someone's like a really big pop star it's much harder to police yeah. and you end up really with like a lot of people who may not even know Hmm. what happened yeah and i wonder like is brand new big enough where because certainly there's a lot of people out there who will never listen to brand new again because yeah. <laughs> of 
And do we need to get into what was reported about Jesse Lacey? I mean, do people know that? Just the idea that he was exploiting fans, essentially. Yeah, grooming, like grooming and, um, you know, like, I mean, it's all very terrible, very documented, very corroborated, very credible. It Um, seemed like it had gone on for a long time. Yeah. Uh, But, like, I wonder, because I feel like if they were to come back, it -hmm. would be with people... An audience that either doesn't care about that stuff or doesn't know about it. Yeah. Um, like people who are not online, maybe they like this band years ago and they still listen to the old albums and they haven't kept up with the news. Which is, so, ve- that is a very real, uh, you know, sector of the population because I it's mean, larger than like it seems if you're online all the time. I know. Like a lot of people I, don't know about it. And, I mean, I've had situations in my job where I've had, like, you know, patients come in wearing a brand new T-shirt. And this is, like, in 2019. I'm like, should I have a conversation with this person? Um, But, yeah, I mean, as you were saying, like, aside from maybe Power Bottom, like, at least at a band of, like, this echelon, uh, I can't think of a cancellation that's been more cut and dry. Um, You know, for one thing, the accusations were shocking. They're terrible. They were corroborated. Jesse Lacey tried to make some sort of apology, and um, also you you place these accusations against their old records, and it's like, oh, I get it now. It's like this is why he thinks he's an irredeemable piece of shit who's doomed to hell. I thought he was just depressed. Turns out he's actual a piece of shit. Um, and so, and then they just completely. I don't shut- know. But can I say something? But like, when, when people turn lyrics against a band like that because i know that happened with ryan adams too people like dug into like his lyrics and they're like well he was telling us that he was this person yeah (laughs) i'm a little skeptical of that just because i feel like on some level you know Lacey wrote about that stuff but was there also like an artistic distance from it like where like i wonder if he really felt culpable Hmm. in a way that would be because because i because i do feel like the confessional nature of lyrics like that can be overstated mm. and that, cause if you're someone who's like serially sort of pursuing women, uh, young female fans, there has to be a level of self delusion mm. that allows you to do that. That wouldn't account for being writing these confessional lyrics. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I don't know. I don't mean to interrupt, but I just think I think there's a disconnect there. I don't think it's like as direct as people want to make it. No, but I think that this is what this guy mentions. Like, you know, you could listen to it, The Devil and God or Daisy and still hear like something beyond like a literal interpretation of it. But when I think about like whether Brand New can come back, I think about whether they should. Because when you when one of the things that like the same thing that made the cancellation of Brand New like so cut and dry is the same uh, it's a similar thing to what made science fiction such a satisfying record in that there was a real finality to it um even before all this accusations took place like science fiction was very clear cut the last brand new album this also brand new went away it's not like they were lingering like you know pine grove or ryan adams or mark kozalik like they were gonna retire and then they just sped up the timeline. And when you think about just like how in the time between Daisy and science fiction, like how loath brand new were to do anything like do press, make music, touring. I mean, if you kept, I've seen transcendent brand new shows and I've seen them just half ass it so badly on stage. When you think about like how difficult it is for them to make music in an environment where 
people really are dying to hear the next move, why would they subject themselves to doing something? It, it just seems unfathomable. Although I have heard whispers that there's like maybe a picture of them hanging out together that's yeah. recent. Um, well, and I, I could see a scenario where they just do a tour or they do a handful of shows to uh, make some money. I, I can't. You know, <laughs> I mean, just going back to like the list, because you're at, you're making the case that it's not worth them to come back. I just can't see it other in issues. them. But the listener, he's asking, like, is it possible for them uh, to come back? And I actually think it is. I really think that we've seen this, not just in music, but in other uh, fields. You know, Louis C.K. is doing shows now. Mm. Uh, you know, you've seen actors come back from scandal and, 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 and seem to have some sort of career. I just think that I mean I don't know I maybe you could answer this better than me I guess I'm wondering to what degree like the core fan base cares about this or 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 even knows about it like, yeah I'd I, say it, it's it, not happening yeah like it's for, interesting because do you have like yeah they have to like I mean you could make the comparison of, like Woody Allen continuing to make movies in Europe that are only released there but it's like you have to consider like. There have got to be venues that have to book it. They have to be people who work with them. Um, like, um, like, I just don't see the infrastructure being set up to make this happen. And when you think about, once again, how loath Brand New are to do anything associated with Brand New, I just it, it, I, it just seems impossible to me. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I guess the only reason I push back against that is that I assume that any band mm -hmm. that's on hiatus for any reason always has the chance to come back because mm. of the possibility of money <laughs> being on the table. Uh, and I and I do feel like there will be a festival out there mm. that will say I you know we 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 know that some people won't like this, but we feel that there's a lot of people that would want to see this band and they'll take a run at them. And maybe they'll take the money. You know, I I, I, I just feel that no uh, breakup or hiatus uh, can stick, you know, unless you're like so rich that the money doesn't even matter to you. And I don't know if Brand New has that kind of cash in, <laughs> I, I don't, in, in the coffers. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm you know not saying they should come back. I I you know that's another question entirely. But like, is it possible? I think it is possible that a festival might just throw a bunch of money at them and say, we think the buzz is worth it and like we're willing to book you. Yeah. I mean, it's the music industry. This is <laughs> not a moral industry, yeah. you know, or at least the morality has an expiration date. And at some point it seems like people forget about uh, scandals, no matter how pernicious they might be. And They'll book people like that. So yeah. who knows? I hope. I, I hope it doesn't happen. Maybe that's like my more. Like I don't think it should. I hope it doesn't. But I will leave open the tiniest possibility that some someone's going to be, uh, you know, cynical enough to do it. Well, we'll see. Yeah, we might return to this topic at some point. Right. We'll we'll see what happens. Um, let's get to the meat of our episode. Yes. We're going to be talking about an album that I feel like doesn't get a lot of attention. And it, it, we like to uh, promote under-promoted uh, artists on this show. Yeah. So we're about the we're underdog gonna, here. That's why we're going to talk about a little record called Nevermind mm. by a band called Nirvana. 
Uh, it came out on September 24th, 1991, which is exactly one year from the date that this episode posts. So this is like maybe the most organized we've ever been. Yeah. Uh, in terms of recognizing an anniversary. Look at us. Uh, so, so good for us. And, you know. It helps that we've had about 10,000 reminders this week that, <laughs> never mind, uh, is, is turning 30. Um, but, you know, I wrote about uh, uh, Nirvana this week. I wrote a big piece about, it was about 5,500 words on like my 40 favorite Nirvana songs. And I, I wrote about this in the lead that the, that the tough thing or, you know, the, the, the trouble with writing about Nirvana at this point is that there really is nothing original to say about them. I mean, they are one of the most discussed and maybe even over-discussed bands in rock history, mm-hmm. even though they were only together for seven years. They put out three studio records, not a huge body of work, uh, but there's multiple documentaries, books, box sets. Uh, the, you know, this is very well-trod ground. Um, but I have to say that, like, you know, I, I have not listened to Nirvana in a long time. I didn't listen to them before writing this piece for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in my own mind, I really just tried to think of them as like a really great rock band, mm-hmm. you know, and tried to um, sort of extricate them from the narrative that is hardened around them. Because mm-hmm. essentially now everything about Nirvana is uh, about sort of, trying to explain why Kurt took his own life. Like that is the dominant narrative. It's, it's baked into everything that's talked about with them. I mean, Michael Azarad just wrote a piece for Mm -hmm. the New Yorker, very good piece about his relationship with Kurt Cobain and like the suicide just hung over that story. I mean, it was the the through line in there And and it's the through line in a lot of pieces about them. And for myself, I think what I tried to do to make Nirvana feel fresh is just to, remember that they're a, they just wrote kick-ass songs that are a lot of fun to listen to and if you could just appreciate them as rock music in a way it kind of saves them because i mean nirvana obviously you could never call them an underrated band but there is something about them where the narrative is so sort of hardened around them that it stifles conversation about nirvana and it makes them i think less fun in a way and and I know for critics, I think it's not interesting for critics to talk about Nirvana anymore. And in a way, I think that, again, they're not underrated, but I wonder to what degree, like with a record like Nevermind, because there's nothing really new you can say about it, if it just, if, if people are just sort of like blasé about the record's great, it's like, yeah, it's great, fine, whatever, in the same way that we are about Sgt. Pepper or... uh you know, never mind the Bullocks or, you know, any record yeah. that's just been discussed. I think with, death. you know, with Nevermind specifically, when we, if you think about it on the level of, say, uh, you know, Sgt. Peppers or like Dark Side of the Moon, I think those albums kind of redefined like what rock music was capable of doing in the studio. Whereas Nevermind, um, it is so familiar sounding, even 30 years after the fact, but like the large, the biggest thing to talk about is its legacy, is how. And it is how it completely changed the um, atmosphere for rock music. I mean, you, I, 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 in, in a way, I think it's like almost like sometimes I'm like still shocked at how much this changed things. Like, for example, like, you know, I'll listen to like Helmet when I'm in the gym and it's like 
because of Nirvana and strictly because of Nirvana, a band like that was like the subject of a seven-figure bidding war in the 90s. Like San Diego was the next Seattle because like because of bands like Drive Like Jehu and Three Mile Pilot. Um or like the Butthole Surfers had like a yes. radio hit, you know, the like like a band like that. Or the, or the Meat Puppets yeah. came back, you know, and they had they had a radio hit, and yeah, that doesn't happen without yeah. Nirvana. And so, but as far as like, is this un- like if we're talking about like Nevermind the record, I I do think it is fair to say that it maybe not like underrated is the right word because like how could you possibly rate it higher? But I think in the in the in the indie cast, you know universe discussion i think it's been like somewhat below in utero or unplugged because in utero is like if you're an indie leaning person like that's the record you know because it's the one where they react against their fame and they're clearly not into it and it's got that raw production you know even at the time kirk cobain thought that you know, never mind was a little bit too slick it's the closest thing Nirvana did to sounding like the Foo Fighters. I mean, if you can warp the timeline like that. Um, And also Unplugged has that aura of mystique. You know, it's the last thing they've done. And uh, it pointed to a future where maybe they're not making like rock music anymore. Maybe they're doing automatic for the people. And so, I mean, when was the last, like, when was the last time you actually like sat and listened to Nevermind? Well, just like the like last week because I, yeah, I, I get, wrote, okay. I wrote Besides this piece. for an assignment. <laughs> I mean, no, like I hadn't for a long time. And it, it is one of those records that, um, especially if you were a teenager in mm. the early nineties, it, it's a record you don't really need to play anymore because it's no. so embedded in the experience of just being young at that time. I mean, you know, I, I said this before, but I mean, revisiting, Never mind. I was it was fun because I hadn't heard it in a while. And again, I was just trying to kind of go back to the way I heard it when it first came out and not listening to it through the lens of everything we know about mm-hmm. what happened to Kurt Cobain after the fact. I mean, I remember when that record came out, it was just like a really like fun, irreverent, you know, kick-ass record. And just thinking of it that way as just purely a collection of rock songs and stripping away all the narrative and all the pretension, I think that is really the key to appreciating that record because, again, I think certainly from a critical perspective, you know, critics like to seek out things that haven't been discussed, you know, things or, or, or they like to bring things down that they feel like are uh, like overrated or, or being over-celebrated. Mm-hmm. And you know, Nevermind just has not had that freshness in in such a long time. You know, like to talk about a song like "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Like I'm not there with "Smells Like Teen." Like that was a, like that was a song I I skipped a lot when I was listening huh. to Nevermind while re- uh, researching this piece. I mean, that's a great song, but that song has so much baggage at this yeah. point that you can't really just appreciate it as a song. It's almost like a '90s history lesson. Or something like when that song comes on, you know. For me, the, the like the key to never mind at this point are the deep cuts, if you can call them deep cuts, because it feels like every song on that album is pretty famous and, and beloved. Yeah. I mean, it is. Practically... I don't know if do you ever hear just like lounge act in, well, in the wild. <laughs> I put lounge act in my in my top ten, which I because I love of that course. song. Songs like lounge act on a plane. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, Drain You wasn't a single, but that almost doesn't seem like a deep cut. I mean, I, I feel like I feel like Nirvana fans especially, or, you know, something in the way. Holly, yeah. Are those deep cuts? I mean, they are, because no. they're not as popular as in Bloom or Come As You yeah, Are, what Breed, is, or Lithium. You know? but... It's like Misty Mountain Hop or whatever, you know? It's like, that's not Stairway to Heaven or When the Levee Blake Breaks, but... Yeah, it's still pretty popular. But yeah, I mean, that's like side two, I guess, of, of Nevermind yeah. to me is, in a way, the more, uh, I guess, approachable side at this point, just because the the first side, it's like all hits that you've heard a million times, and they're all great. Like, Come As You Are, I think, is still a really great song, and, and Breed, I think, is a great song. I mean, the, they're all great songs. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, Nirvana, I think, even more than, like, a lot of other legacy bands, mm-hmm. have, it's really been a double-edged sword, the mythologizing that's happened with them, because mm-hmm. it's obviously elevated them to a status that is, I think, higher than any other 90s rock band, probably. I mean, yeah. save, Nir- like, Radiohead, maybe? Nah, Nirvana's a bigger, like, I'd say Nirvana's a bigger deal. And especially with younger generations. I mean, oh, absolutely. They're, like, the band that is, that's really translated. I mean, you know, one of the biggest events in the streaming world during the pandemic was the Post Malone uh, Nirvana uh, cover set. Did you ever watch that, by the way? Um, uh, you know, I've heard it was... I don't know if good is the right word. I've heard it was, like, better than you expected. It was but pretty like, charming. Expect- I mean, yeah. he's, a, he's a pretty, like, disarming guy. It, it, yeah. He's, like, he's like difficult to dislike if you just listen to him talk. And <laughs> he was performing those songs, I think, like, pr- pretty well and, and certainly with a lot of sincerity and earnestness. Uh, he revealed that one of his favorite Nirvana songs is Stay Away, which is, like I guess, another deep cut on Nevermind. Yeah. And he, I guess he has a Stay Away tattoo on his face. Oh. So that takes it to another level in terms of like you know people that just wear the T-shirt, and you're like, well, name three of their songs. If you get the face tattoo... Yes. Yeah, well, he's already away. named one song, so you feel like he probably knows two other songs, at least, yeah. uh, you know, if you, if you stopped him on the street. Um, one thing that's interesting with this record, too... And we were talking about this, that, you know, obviously the Nevermind anniversary is a big deal, but a bunch of other iconic 90s rock albums came out around the same time in about a six-week span. Yeah. Because you had the Black Album in early August, you had Pearl Jam 10 Mm. at the end of August, Uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic came out also on September 24th. Oh, wow. What a, what a day. What a day, man. And then Use Your Illusion albums came out like a week before. Um, and uh, Bad Motor Finger also came out around this time by Soundgarden. I have to say that at the time, uh, just so we don't overstate the importance of Nirvana, that like probably my most anticipated, certainly like the album that I listened to the most in September of 1991, were the Use Your Illusion albums. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, and then obviously Nirvana took greater precedence after that but because mm-hmm. i know i mean you and i were talking about this before the show though like the narrative about them killing hair metal and like yeah. how everything was alt rock after they came along it's not quite that clean no with, with 90s rock yeah and also like of course me at 11 years old is going to want to listen to use your illusion uh one and two because of I think the fir- the first R-rated movie I saw was Terminator 2, which right. had You Could Be Mine, which is like w- like one of the most kick-ass songs imaginable. Like combined with the most kick-ass 
R-rated 11-year-old movie that you could imagine. So it's like, yeah, this band's the shit. Yeah, I was going to um, say, like, I think that, like, the video for You Could Be Mine yeah. was, like, <laughs> that might have been, like, the biggest cultural event of my lifetime up to that point. Because yeah. it was Terminator 2, it was, it was teasing that, and then it was also teasing the first two Guns N' Roses albums in, in several years. So it was, like, this confluence of just, you know, dirt bad, dirt like, all the dirt bag kids out there were just, it was, this was, like, the greatest moment of their lives, and I yeah. was one of them. Yeah, and I had no capacity to understand subtext. Like, I knew that, like, Nirvana was maybe, like, more subversive or weird than, I guess, like, Pearl Jam 10, which, by the way, like, Pearl Jam was a much bigger band to me at that time. Um, like, I always have wondered, like... If you were 16 in 1970 or whatever, or like, what would it be like if like the Beatles or like Pink Floyd was like your sixth favorite band at the time? Well, Pearl Jam, yeah, people forget that because Pearl Jam, even more than Nirvana, I think became their own genre, which Mm -hmm. really became like a self-defeating thing for Pearl Jam. Just in terms of bands imitating Pearl Jam, uh, it, it, it really hurt them like by the end of the 90s. And yeah. of course, Nirvana didn't really have to weather that because they ended really before the backlash could really yeah. settle in with them. But yeah, I, that's another <laughs> thing that's that's overlooked. That like Pearl Jam, because in '92 you had Ten was really blowing up, and then they also had Temple of the Dog, and they were big on the single soundtrack, and then they were also headliners at Lollapalooza. And meanwhile, Kurt Cobain was shooting heroin in an LA apartment with Courtney Love. For the majority of '92, yeah, I mean, you have to you have to consider that, like, yes, like the the lower tier of hair metal bands disappeared, but I mean, nine, like when once I finally got basic cable in my house, in like '91 to '93, it was you could see you could see like Nirvana kind of change things, but you would also still see a lot of Aerosmith videos and Meatloaf and Eric Clapton unplugged. Um, it, it, when you take like a a the zoom out view of things yeah like nirvana may have like decimated the jackal of the world or the great white or whatever but you know there was still a time where they were just like a popular maybe not even the most popular band of their ilk um and they were they you know in utero kind of considered a commercial not a flop obviously but uh you know i think pearl jam were bigger back then right yeah, I, you'd be the expert on this. Yeah, one. I, w- I would say so. I mean, I think the thing with Nirvana, you know, just to kind of go back to what you were saying about mm-hmm. how if you look at an album like Dark Side of the Moon or Sgt. Pepper, like these classic rock, rock war horses as being advances in studio technology or like what you could do on a record and how Nevermind isn't really innovative in, in that regard. I think the thing with Nevermind is that it's almost like if it's not the last phenomenon, it's like one of the last phenomenons of like a pre-internet world yes. where you had the old world media that controlled what the majority of people saw and heard. So if mm-hmm. you lived in the middle of the country and you get most of your music from MTV because there's not a cool college radio station in your town and there's not a cool independent record store, that if things aren't on MTV, then they might as well not exist. Yeah. So for a band like Nirvana to get on MTV and then to also usher in all these other underground bands into MTV, that's a that's a huge deal in a way that maybe is hard to comprehend now. Like if yeah. you if you haven't grown up in that sort of world, uh, because you know, 
it wasn't like Nirvana invented underground culture. There was already a thriving American indie rock scene going on in the 80s, well before Nirvana existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the internet existed in the 80s, you know, a lot more people <laughs> oh, would have known God. about the replacements and, and well, I mean, the replacements not even being an indie band by the end of the 80s, but you know, a band no. like the Meat Puppets or something might have been more well known if the internet, internet existed then. And then the impact of a band like Nirvana wouldn't have been as felt as strongly. I mean, it was really a product of like an old media system. That yeah. was about to be taken apart, you know? So that's why I feel like, you know, there's still, I feel, sometimes this conversation about, well, can this indie band rise up and take over the mainstream? And it's I feel like that's always echoing the Nirvana story. You know, there's yeah. still people that are waiting for another Nirvana, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the upstart punk band that somehow goes on to sell 10 million records. And I just don't know if that's possible in the current media environment, just because the element of surprise can, can't be there in the same way. Yeah. And also no one's going to sell 10 million records. Well, that too, (laughs) or, you know, know, or, or goes on to have like a billion streams or something, whatever modern analogy you want to, you want to use. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough to say, but I think that like one, the one, if we think of the reason that, you know, Nirvana has, transcended and still been an influence like i couldn't appreciate as a 13 year old kurt cobain like very obviously trying to put on bands like the raincoats and the vaselines and you know i read the incesticide um credits where he lays out his feminism and you know his other subversive ideas like very clearly but like i like it's like getting like a million dollars of foreign currency that you can't spend like what the fuck did i know about that and yet when you wear a Nirvana t-shirt now, you understand like it expresses alienation with popular culture that like you're a dark kid in ways that it was more difficult to understand when they were an active band. Well, and, and yeah, that's I, what you can't do with ra- with Radiohead, you can't do that. Like there's no other 90s band that expresses that sort of teenage alienation as a clearly as wearing a nirvana shirt does now well and also with with cobain i mean the ultimate irony of his career is that you know in in the moment he was associated as being this critic of rock stardom as a person who was a reluctant Mm -hmm. um celebrity and, and and didn't like the system although again i think even at the time there was some contradictory things going on there because i think he actually did want to be more famous than -hmm. sometimes he let on in interviews but you know that was his stance then and now i think looking back he really is regarded as like one of the great rock stars ever mm. you know and like i remember rob zombie had this quote <laughs> i bring rob zombie in yeah great man i but love he, it but he had this quote about how he felt that in the 90s that the grunge people um destroyed rock stardom because they they dressed like normal people and that they didn't act like the rock stars of the 70s but I mean, look at Kurt Cobain. Like, watch the Unplugged special. Just go on YouTube and, like, look yeah. at him. I mean, is there... I mean, he, he literally looks like a golden god in that episode. Yeah. He's this really good-looking guy. Uh, he is dressed in a way that... He almost had, like, a uniform on stage in the way he... Like, he didn't wear spandex and kiss makeup, but in his own way, he had a very theatrical way of presenting himself that I think... Yeah. 
like like you think of him and you know what you picture the cardigan you're picturing like the sneakers and the blue jeans and it became its own kind of kiss costume for the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the appeal for, for subsequent generations. I mean, that he in a way has the same allure that like Jim Morrison has for people, <laughs> you know, that he's, no, like this, I agree. That's this what good I looking think rock that. star who died young. There's something romantic about that. And when you're a teenager, you mm-hmm. tend to, you're more apt to romanticize a person like that, a tragic hero. Yeah, what's a more teenage like uh, impulse than leave me alone, but also like love me and adulate me? You know, right, right, exactly. So I don't know. I would say that if you are, if you've never heard Nirvana, which I have a hard time believing, but like, you, <laughs> give this scrappy little band a chance. If Tell you're them indie cast, well, you know, there might be a teenager <laughs> out there who hasn't checked out Nirvana yet. I would definitely give it a spin. Um, maybe head toward the deep cuts because I'm I'm guessing if you haven't heard the album, you've at least heard "Smells Like Teen Spirit" and "In Bloom," but listen to "Lounge Act," listen to "Drain You," some of those lesser known songs that might be a way into the record. And for those of you who are sick of Nirvana, I got to say, as someone who again, you know, I grew up with them, I hadn't listened to them for a long time, but I recently revisited them and I really enjoyed it. I got to say too that the Live at Reading live album, oh, yeah, from '92 is incredible and that might be if you're sick of nirvana that might be the album to go to to refresh your palate a little bit because it really is like a great rock show and it, it shows again like what they were capable of of doing on stage when they had all their stuff together All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So, you know, right now we're in the golden age of turnstile. Uh, when I was at Pitchfork Fest, that was all anyone wanted to talk about with me. And, uh, you know, I wondered that, like, whether the rising turnstile tide would lift other hardcore boats, you know, to you know have a convoluted metaphor. And the first one that I was curious about is a band called One Step Closer, who is releasing their album today called This Place You Know. They were um, they toured with Turnstile in Europe. They're out on Run For Cover Records, which is you know a real stronghold of crossover hardcore. And um, they're from Wilkes-Barre. They are a straight-edge hardcore band. So obviously, the title fight comparisons have uh, accompanied them since they got started. And... You know, I, I, I do really wonder, you know, like this album would have been hyped anyway, uh, just, you know, in any year where Turnstile doesn't drop. But like, is there going to be like more of an interest in bands like this one or Knocked Loose or, uh, you know, See Space Cowboy? But this one gets a little bit, it's not anywhere near as like pop as Glow On, but it does have that sound of like title fight or thursday like when people talk about like emo core as in like you know the first wave of it where it still sounds like hardcore but it's obvious this person feels things a little more deeply they're thinking of a band like one step closer and also you can make the easiest uh, joke ever where you know with their debut album it's like one step closer is about to break so um if you like run for cover if that if that uh record label means anything to you if you know if you Love title fight, but wish they never went shoegaze. Uh, this album, One Step Closer, This Place You Know, 
it kicks ass. So that's, I mean, that's, you know, the long and short of it. But uh, likewise, it'll be very interesting to see if people maintain their uh, newfound interest in populist hardcore. Yeah, I mean, I think Turnstile seems unique to me just because of their pop sense. And those mm-hmm. songs are so approachable, even if you don't listen to that kind of music very often. And a lot of those other bands you listed, I don't know if they have quite the songwriting chops that Turnstile does, but we'll see. I, I Like I said, I, I welcome a wave of really great melodic hard rock bands. So mm-hmm. I hope that Turnstile, like Nirvana... <laughs> open the door to many other uh, worthy bands out there. I want to talk about a guy who put out an album today. Uh, his name's Andy Schaff. He's a singer-songwriter from Canada. His new album is called Wilds. And if you know Andy Schaff, you may be familiar with his record that came out, I believe that was 2020, called The Neon Skyline. And uh, The Neon Skyline, it was a second record. His first record is called The Party. And uh, the Neon Skyline is a record really structured like a novel. It's like a collection of characters that gather at this bar called the Neon Skyline. And you listen to the record, and it's very immersive, and you feel like you get to know everyone in the story. And Wilds, in a way, is a companion record to that. Um, I interviewed Andy Schaff last year, and he talked about how he wrote 50 songs for the Neon Skyline, and uh, which means that there's still a lot left in a vault somewhere. But he put out nine of those songs that were left over from the Neon Skyline on this record. And it's just another opportunity to spend more time with these, again, very richly created characters that he uh, first introduced uh, on the Neon Skyline. Um, I think Andy is first and foremost known as a really good narrative songwriter. But I feel like a really another great aspect of, of what he does is that he also plays every instrument on his records and he also produces his records mm. and one of the joys of his of his music for me is just the the sounds that he's able to get he gets great drum sounds and great guitar tones that i associate with really classic 60s pop rock records as well as like 70s singer songwriter albums um if, if you're a fan of that kind of music and you just love how those records are produced and like how live they feel and, and just how precise everything is captured. Uh, listening to his music is a real joy, both lyrically and musically. And uh, I think Wilds again shows that in terms of singer songwriters and, and songwriters that tell stories, Andy Schaff belongs at or near the top of any list. So that mm-hmm. record again, it's called Wilds. It dropped today. Definitely go check that out. That was a quintessential IndieCast recommendation corner. Yes, it was. was. (laughs) Uh, Thank you all for listening uh, to this episode. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.